0: Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome into Soccer Morning, the first one of the week. Yes, we were off the air yesterday. Our sincere apologies. Blame Skype. Blame technology for that one. Um, But we are back. We've got a big show for you today. Christian Hennage will join us in just a little bit to talk about the Premier League, uh, perhaps delve into some MLS as things get tight in the respective playoff races in Major League Soccer. That should be good. I'm sure, you know, I think we're going to talk about Diego Costa. I, I think we'll probably have to have a discussion about Diego Costa as he has been charged by the FA. In fact, that's where the news starts today. So let's dive right in. So we have plenty of time to talk to Kristen. The FA has charged Diego Costa of Chelsea and Gabriel of Arsenal with violent conduct um, in uh, regards to that incident that happened in the Chelsea win over Arsenal this weekend. Remember, Gabriel got himself sent off for some heel flick that Diego Costa made a big deal out of after Costa had uh, gotten away with his own violent actions. Uh, We'll see what the FA decides to do. This is clearly retroactive punishment for uh, for those actions, as uh, seen on replay, uh, Costa has uh, avoided he avoided a, a yellow card in the match, but obviously will face a suspension if they uh, find that these charges are accurate. The parents of American youth player Ben Liederman, who uh, was recently at Barcelona, the first American player at La, La Masia, has said that they will take FIFA to court over Article 19. That's the rule that prevents clubs from bringing in foreign national players before the age of 18. They're claiming that this is a violation of human rights. Danny Lederman, uh, uh, father of Ben, said a few days ago in an interview with the New York Times that FIFA are killing my son. He said uh, he wants him to be able to be happy and play football where he wants, which is clearly at Barcelona. I've, I've talked to a couple of people on Twitter this morning uh, about this issue. It seems unlikely that if this went to the court uh, for arbitration of sport and became an issue of uh, the the rule itself seems unlikely that the uh, ben liderman would have a case but if he can prove if the lidermans themselves can prove that there are exceptional circumstances and that they moved to spain outside of uh, outside of football reasons then certainly that would allow ben to continue at barcelona remember ben liderman because of this issue moved to the residency academy in Bradenton, Florida, as part of the U-17 setup for the United States. and Tobago's attorney general has approved extradition to the United States for one Jack Warner. Jack Warner, of course, denying the charges that he, has, uh, that he was uh, guilty of corruption and accepting millions of dollars in bribes as part of the FIFA scheme. Uh, the uh, only one arrested official so far, Jeffrey Webb, has agreed to be extradited. Everyone else is fighting extradition at the moment. Uh, we'll see if uh, this comes uh, comes down to an easy situation. Very unlikely considering Jack Warner's resources and his propensity for uh, denying the truth. He's just that kind of guy. The president of the Spanish Sports Council has warned that if Catalonia splits from Spain, this will turn Barcelona into a club like Celtic. The president of the Spanish Sports Council has warned Barcelona will be, end up being similar to Celtic or Ajax if Catalonia broke from Spain and became independent. The issue of potential independence for the region is again dominating the political and media agenda in Spain. This weekend, Catalonia goes to the polls in a regional election that is being seen as a second vote on independence after an unofficial referendum last year showed 80% of Catalans were in favor of breaking away. La Liga president Javier Tebas tweeted on Monday that if Spain Spain breaks, La Liga breaks. Uh, Right now, Barcelona and the president, Josep Maria Bartomeu, has said that the club is remaining neutral on this particular issue. MLS commissioner Don Garber was in St. Paul yesterday uh, touring the site for a proposed MLS uh, MLS stadium in that city. Quote, we have been very focused on this market because we really believe in what's happening in the community. It's filled with millennials. It's got a great ethnic energy. And those are two things we've been driving the growth of MLS. Those are comments made by Commissioner Garber uh, to a a public radio station there in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. Uh, We'll see exactly when this all comes down. Uh, Story at SI from Brian Strauss yesterday outlined that the league may want to push Minnesota ahead uh, to pair with Atlanta to come into the league together with LAFC being pushed back, with Miami uncertain at the moment. Uh, We'll see what uh, comes out of that. Mexico is in a race to get Andres Guardado healthy for the October 10 clash with the United States at the Rose Bowl. They have sent their national team kinesiologist Gabriel Paulista to the Netherlands to help with Guardado's recovery. An, R- an MRI revealed strained ankle ligaments for Guadardo, and he was expected to miss four to six weeks, which would, which would certainly put him past the October 10th date. Mexico also dealing with Rafa Marquez, who is expe- expected to miss out due to a groin injury. All right, so there's your news. That's a good uh, base to work from. We will dive into the Premier League, into Diego Costa and everything else with our Frank Christian Hennage in just a minute. Soccer Morning, worldsoccertalk.com. we During the past few months, we've created a new weekend tradition, which includes watching your favorite MLS team play on TV, muting the broadcast, heading to rabble.tv to hear my audio during the game, and then drinking a cold beverage as you spend 90 minutes together discussing our favorite league. And now we're taking it to the next level by bringing back Jared Dubois to join me this Sunday for LA Galaxy FC Dallas at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. With Rabble, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the Galaxy vs. Dallas game on TV, press the mute button, and then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to me and Jared through your desktop, through your iOS Android app, or through your mobile browser. Plus, before or during the game, you can join in by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. Or why don't you create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games. It's easy. Sign up for free today and try it out. Join me and Jared this Sunday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for LA Galaxy against FC Dallas on rabble.tv where it's your team and your call welcome back to soccer morning on world soccer talk with jason davis all right christian henage is with us yeah he's with us right now christian how are you sir (laughs) I'm not bad. I'm here. I'm okay, from- you're here, and and we're going to talk about some football. This will be a good time. Uh, all right, there there's no other place to start when it comes to the Premier League weekend other than with Diego Costa and what happened in that match. Chelsea beating Arsenal, uh, but all anybody can talk about is what a villain Diego Costa is, how he baits uh, and and... He, he does this uh, this act, and he manages to get Gabriel sent off, and now both of them have been charged by the FA. I, you know, I, I I I sort of tried to explain myself yesterday on this front when it came to, to Diego Costa. While I abhor everything he does on the field in this regard, it makes it more interesting, certainly, and, you know, I like a good villain.
1: <laughs> I think I can see why, why you appreciate the, the pantomime villain in him. I think what you can say, though, from perhaps a, a moral side of things, is that his behaviour is pretty abhorrent. It's not something you really want to see. And, and whether you consider him a role model or not, it's not really in keeping with the game. And the thing is, yes, he has history with Gabriel from their time at Atletico and, and Villarreal, respectively. But he's done this kind of throughout his career. There's a, a vine that I put up at the weekend that kind of popped around Twitter of him and Mo Soko. Um, kind of going back and forth. And, and Sissoko is in an absolute clout um, after Costa kind of headbutts him and tries to, to rile him up. So it, it's clearly a, a facet of his game mm-hmm. and one that he considers quite important. The frustrating thing is, and, and it might boil down to kind of playground mentality, but if you're that good, you shouldn't really need to do that. Drogba never in I could be you know changing his legacy here. But I never remember Drogbar doing anything like that. He was physical. He was a bully in the same way that that Costa is. But he never kind of blurred that line from what I can remember. Um, And it's disappointing to see him do that because I I do. I think he just detracts massively from his game. And the problem is now he's going to have a massive spotlight on himself. So he's, He's going to be watched meticulously week in, week out, I think, by officials.
0: I think he's used up all of his uh, get-out-of-jail-free cards, and this isn't actually, it's already over if the FA is charging him. I imagine something will come out of this review. Uh, What do you expect the FA to do? Well, I mean, they they have
1: banned him. I think that's what they can do in the short term. In the long term, I think all they can really do is tell their officials to to be more vigilant in watching him and keeping an eye on things. I think if you try to look at the wider context, what you could argue is this is another instance where video replays could be effective because there was a kind of uh, break in play, if you will, where everything was kind of discussed and, and Mike Dean's trying to tell the respective players what he thinks. In that moment, I think... It's completely believable that a fourth official could review the footage, see the fact that actually Kost has been the instigator, not only with Kishelny but arguably with, with Gabriel as well, and that if anything, he should be the person walking. Now, I also see that there is an argument that says none of them should walk, and that actually we should attempt to maintain 11 players on both sides as much as possible. I do tend to fall in line with that, because I think once you lose a player from the game, it does detract
0: sure, significantly.
1: Sure. And for that reason, I think you need it to be a truly extreme instance to justify that
0: dismissal well, well we know that r- the referees quite often refrain from pulling out a card especially a, a straight red or a second yellow uh, for that very reason it, it, uh, they they don't want to have to change the game and, and i have no i have no issue though with someone being sent off for violent conduct and you know maybe you can go back to the incident uh, was it kashelny who was it that he event- initially uh, smacked around a little bit there. I mean, you can watch that 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 replay, Christian, and sort of argue that maybe, m- maybe he didn't mean to do it. I mean, I, I think it's fairly obvious, but that's our problem, again, with trying to determine intent. And, you know, there is always the Pandora's box side of this. Uh, you, you need some strict... If you're going to use replay, you need strict rules as to when it can be applied. You can't just say, well, something happened, let's go look at the replay. Because then you're opening yourself up to everything being reviewed or, or a referee, uh, again, declining to make a decision so that the, the, re- the, the replay can be used instead, sort of covering his backside. I, I just I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is because I'm just I, I think there are some issues with suggesting that in that particular instance, they're going to go back and review anything. You can't see you can't see whatever Gabrielle did to Costa. They got Gabrielle the red card.
1: I think what I would say to to clarify my point is that it's not necessarily a challenge in the sense that Arsene Wenger puts it for. I think it's an instance where there is enough time for the the fourth official, perhaps even someone away from the field, in one of the the rooms in the bowels of the stadium, completely kind of away from any influence, sit there and, and, you know, they can communicate very quickly in in football stadiums these days. So I, I think that option to just have someone who can do it when it's possible, um, obviously there'll be instances. There's even instances now where you have penalties and things like that, where even upon replay, it's nigh impossible to truly, def- you know, define and, and decide whether it was the correct call. But also, there are a lot of clear-cut decisions that actually, upon a simple review, taking seconds, you do get a clarity from the situation. And in this case, as you say, Costa was the instigator the player that, that started things and yet got away with it. And you could argue influence the game in a, a different way because the yeah. game is a significant advantage.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I'm just, again, I'm sort of hung up on what is the instigation for turning to replay. Is it simply that there is a break and that, oh, we've got it coming together, we've got players arguing with, with Mike Dean, and now we're going to just take that opportunity? I mean, it seems a little um you, you know that that seems a little arbitrary i i, I again i 'm not saying that that replay shouldn 't be used to catch Diego Costa doing what he did. I just want to make sure that we have some system in place that dictates because otherwise again we we we, we as viewers on television we have the the benefit of instant replay if there 's never a stop in play if the referee decides to allow an advantage or, or something uh, just wave something off uh, or misses something behind the the play behind the ball then we see it, he doesn't, now there's no break in play. When does the fourth official go back and review these things? Well,
1: what I would say is when you watch kind of referees give analysis on television, one thing they'll consistently commend the referee for is saying he gave himself time to make a decision. And I appreciate it's very difficult because the Premier League is notoriously fast. It's one of those leagues that never seems to stop. And as you say, a break in play can seem detrimental, but actually to take a step back, to give yourself a second and truly evaluate a situation based on what you've seen, I think is always the best way to do it. I have a, a friend who's a referee here, kind of in the lower league, if you will, um, and is trying to progress up that ladder into the football league. And, and I've talked to him about it, and he consistently says that actually giving yourself that time, giving yourself that moment of evaluation can actually be really influential in the game because you are, whether intentionally or not, dictating the game by your decisions and mm-hmm. it's important that you attempt to get every single one of them right. Of course it's now impossible to do so, but if you can get the majority right, then you're on to a winner and I think it's it's just about that time and taking that step back.
0: Okay, uh, let's let's turn to the result. The, what does this say about Chelsea and Arsenal right at this moment?
1: I think Arsenal, it says that unfortunately Alisson Wenger is, is too loyal to his players. Um, I think he's, he's given too many of them too many opportunities um, to prove that they, they can be the players that they were intending to be when he bought them. Um, I think if you look at Mourinho by comparison, it, it, it's no surprise that they don't get on because I think Mourinho is notoriously disposable with his players. If, if they're not performing, he will ship them out. He will find new players to take their place. And and I think that's one of the reasons he's had more success in, in recent years. I think maybe in, in you know years gone by, you could show that little bit of loyalty and build a team in a slowly and more progressive way. But I think the current market, the way it is, you can really overhaul a team in in a summer, arguably two transfer windows. Um, As for Chelsea, it was difficult to say because it was against 10 men. And in that sense, if they didn't win, they would have lost, if that makes sense. Um, I think for them, there's still things that need to be ironed out. I think if you're looking for an overall positive, I thought Kurt Zuma was fantastic. Um, dropping John Terry to put him in is a big haul because of what Terry represents mm-hmm. to, to Chelsea Football Club. But in the the performance he gave, particularly against Theo Walcott, I think they now have a defender who can deal with these fast players, the likes of Jefferson Montero, and, and players that I would argue were causing Terry and even Ivanovic major problems in the mm-hmm. first few weeks of the season.
0: I'm I'm glad we we could sort of be glad for not only the the result, um, but even for Diego Costa and Gabrielle and everything else, uh, because it means that we don't have to talk about handshakes. So there is that Um, we could move forward, I suppose, on that front. Uh, Let's let's turn to the the big surprise. And and that is West Ham uh, beating uh, Manchester City one, two at the Etihad, holding on for dear life. uh, uh, West Ham at the end of that match, It, it seemed as though City was just not sharp enough. I, I, I guess this is. I mean, it's it's a huge credit to Slavin Village and and West Ham, but it's it's also indicative of of something for Manchester City. I mean, that that was a lack of of killer instinct, maybe.
1: It was. I think the the thing is as well. I think you have to credit West Ham for the fact that if you watch them, they stay very narrow and compact as a team. And I think the reason we're seeing them beat the bigger sides is because of the bigger sides in the Premier League. A lot of those teams operate in small, compact areas as well. There's not really, I would argue, any of the teams that they face in the middle Liverpool, Arsenal, or City that like to play really wide. Even Jesus Navas is, is quite narrow for a winger. And I think on the flip side of that, the absence of Vincent company is, is huge to, to Man City. That's what we're seeing. If you look at the Juventus game, they're 1-0 up, he goes off, they lose 2-1. He's absent again at the weekend. They lose 2-1. He's clearly holding that defense together. And if you look at uh, Mangala, personally, I'm not convinced by him yet. Um, Similar with Otamendi, I I personally felt that, um, yes, he had a fantastic season at Valencia. But at Porto, he was very hit and miss, much like Mangala in that sense. And I I just think that for all the money City have spent on on central defenders um, of late, they haven't found anyone with the quality of company. And I think that's an immense credit to him because he really is a fantastic defender that came through this kind of period of doubt and people questioning whether the best form of his career was over and and he was on the slide to actually coming back and being instrumental in then not only recording a perfect start, but also keeping a lot of clean sheets. Um, And I think that's going to be the concern for Manuel Pellegrini now is that without company, they don't look nearly as strong defensively. Um, and that's kind
0: of been central to their success early on in the season. Manchester United goes to Southampton and wins three two. I didn't see much of that game, Chris. I don't know how much you did, um, but you know, coming off of the, the loss in the Champions League, uh, important to get a win for Manchester United and important to, uh, to I guess, to score goals at this point. What uh, where on? I mean, I feel like I ask you the same question the same way every week. Where is Louis Van Hall in his in his project? I think he's making slow progression.
1: Um, I, I Personally, I don't think he'll be the one that sees this kind of project through to the end. I think someone else will come in and take it to its peak, if you will. What I think you can say is that in Anthony Martial, irrespective of whether you think he's an exceptional player or you think he's an incredibly lucky so-and-so, he gives them something that they didn't have at the start of the season. Mm-hmm. He gives them pace. He gives them someone who's willing to make movement that not only is beneficial to him but also to the team in terms of opening up space for the other players to play and I think that's something that Wayne Rooney necessarily wasn't doing and I think because Wayne Rooney isn't the, the quickest striker, he's not the most mobile, he's not able to make those same kind of movements. He's also not able to drive at defenders. Um, if you look at Marshall playing on, on Sunday, a lot of what he was doing was going at defenders and running at mm-hmm. them and, and essentially challenging them to catch him. and a lot of times that brought fouls, a lot of times it brought free kicks. Now that removes pressure, it also helps the team recover. It has a number of benefits. And then you kind of put on top of that the most important factor, which is he's scoring goals and he looks so composed and so cool. He, it was something Gary Neville touched on, the fact that he scores his first goal and he kind of doesn't really celebrate. Now that's something we used to criticise Mario Balotelli for, but it's a cool-headed composure. It's, it's something that benefited him then again in the second instance where he could have very easily fluffed that chance, but he calmly rolls it past the goalkeeper. And that's a trait that I don't think we see in a lot of strikers. And if I'm perhaps trying to, to get even more excited about him as a Manchester United fan, that bodes well because that's the kind of skill that we see from truly elite
0: strikers. Well, what does this mean? I mean, it seems as though every time we talk about Manchester United and, and goal scoring and strikers, I mean, it, the, there is an, there is sort of that... That underlying current of what to do with about Wayne Rooney. Where does Wayne Rooney go? What's his what's his immediate future? How important is he as a figure and as a player? And those things don't necessarily line up. Exactly.
1: And, and personally, I I think a move, maybe MLS as an example, is the best course for him. Um, I'm loath to say he's finished because he has talent. I think he shows that. But the, the blunt truth is he doesn't fit into this team. He doesn't offer them what he really used to. Um he's changed as a player. I think he wants to come a lot deeper now. And the problem is, is that Manchester United already have enough players in deep positions. Um they're kind of operating with a, a double pivot. And mm. the problem is is that it's it's too many kind of cooks in the kitchen at that point. And Rooney I've I've also found just watching him, he's someone that that I think struggles sometimes in the team dynamic. I think he wants to do his own thing too much. And in the case of Manchester United, at the minute it is all about the team and how you feed into that bigger project. And he just doesn't do that. And then you factor in the financial concerns the that he's on, I think £300,000 a week. It's just not value for money. Yeah. Um, and while I'm sure there's a section of Manchester United fans that, that views there's a the loyalty there to maintain and, you know, a player to look after I just think you have to try and get us in him. Um, the difficulty is finding a suitor because I can't see him really wanting to take the paper. Oh, no. and equally I can't see a team at the minute in the elite who could afford him finding a way to fit him in because he is in that sense he's a very
0: difficult player to fit in. He, he's in a limbo. You know, you you mentioned Jose Mourinho's propensity for cutting ties with players who aren't doing the job, getting new players in, uh, in the end, you know, in the interest of winning. Uh, while, while Arsene Wenger kind of lags behind in that regard, a little too, too loyal. What we knew about Sir Alex Ferguson is that he was not afraid to cut ties when it was time to cut ties. If, if, it, was, uh, if it wasn't working anymore, if a player had outlived his usefulness to Manchester United, or certainly his value uh, had changed. Do you think that if Alex Ferguson was still managing this club, Wayne Rooney would be at Manchester United?
1: I'd
0: be inclined
1: to say no. Um, I believe there's a new book from Sir Alex Ferguson out at the minute and he, he says he worked with four world-class players and I believe Rooney wasn't one of the players that he named. And I think in that, it it is quite telling. Um, I, I can't imagine Ferguson keeps him around. I certainly can't imagine he gives in that deal. I know there was a a, a genuine um, frustration from Sir Alex Ferguson that Rooney was going to be paid more than he was. Um, now, you could argue that. Know, kind of arrogance or obosity or, or, <laughs> or whatever. But I think actually, it was him knowing that he wasn't valued highly enough to, to command that wage to the football club. And that actually, he was closer to being on the downward peak of his career than rising to the top of it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do. I, I just think, if Sir Alex Ferguson is still there, Wayne Rooney really isn't, personally. Mm.
0: Yeah, the story goes that Ferguson got a pay raise uh, by convincing the bosses that he needed to be making more than Rooney because you know th- that's a dynamic that has changed obviously in the last I-, I don't know fifteen twenty years where players are now paid much more than the men who are responsible for uh, for putting them on the on the team sheet and uh, I thought that ship had sailed I mean I guess give Alex Ferguson credit for that uh, Chris for 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 pulling that leverage because no I don't know that there's anybody else in the world that could actually Get, maybe Mourinho, maybe Mourinho now, but I, I don't see anybody else saying to to their owners, "I need a raise because I need to be making more than my than my my most famous certainly players." It's it's funny
1: whenever we talk about this kind of thing. I'm always reminded of, of something Alexi Lalas told me when I asked him if, if Lee Wen was chronically underpaid in MLS, and he just said, "Negotiate your worth," and I think that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, realistically, the idea of Players being under or overpaid, same with managers. It's all about what you can negotiate. And I think someone in in Alex Ferguson's position could have commanded any salary he wanted from Manchester United because he delivered unrivalled success, not just at the football club, in the context of British football. Um, and for that reason, he he was the figurehead. And and you look at the fact that actually it was he who left. He wasn't told to leave. Um, it was you know the unfortunate passing of his sister that that kind of facilitated his retirement. And so I think, if if that doesn't happen, then he's likely even still there going now. Because you know, I remember many years ago he was talking about retiring, and it was the latest Sir Bobby Robson who convinced him not to. Um, so I, again, it's it, it's all what ifs, but. Yeah, there's, there's no surprise that he thought he should be
0: paid more, and I can almost see why. Uh, let me let's turn to Mercy side. Let's talk about Liverpool. One-one uh, draw with Norwich. More, even more pressure, more heat on on Brendan Rodgers at this point. Um, you know, this is this is a game they're supposed to win at home, Chris, and and you know we are getting closer and closer. I think to to FSG having to make some sort of decision on, on the ultimate future of the club. and I, I know there are people out there preaching patience with Bendon Rogers, but this is this is starting to become a real concern. I mean, if you're looking for a
1: positive, Liverpool are on a 10-match and beating streak against Norwich in the Premier League, so they haven't <laughs> lost against um, <clears> them <throat> in the last 10, so that's something to look for. I was just surprised by the formation, personally. I mean, going with five at the back and then You've kind of got those two midfielders, one of which in Lucas, I think, is always going to sit deeper. It just didn't strike me as the kind of approach you would take against a newly promoted side. Um, and equally, I mean, the, the goal Russell Martin scored, the marking was atrocious. I mean, credit to, to Martin, it's a fantastic finish and equally done kind of the day after he watches his son be born. Um, so he must have been on no sleep as well, which makes it all the more impressive, I think. It's just a concern in terms of, if you look at Brendan Rodgers, the first season he tried to be very possession-orientated. The second season, I think he realised that Suarez, Sturridge, Sterling, it was all about getting the ball to them quickly, being direct and getting the ball near the goal as quickly as possible. Over time, unfortunately, he's lost Sturridge to injury for a large part, Sterling to City, Suarez to Barcelona. And because he changed the way the team operated, he couldn't then go back and try to play possession football. Um, But he also couldn't play the direct style because he didn't have the players that facilitate it. And I think at the minute it feels like he's kind of caught between the two different wheelhouses. There's times they're trying to play possession football, but then with Benteke, they're also trying to be direct and get it straight to him so he can try and score goals. And It's neither one thing nor the other. And I think that's where you're seeing the, Kind of a lack of harmony in the way they play, and it's it's kind of bearing itself out on the pitch, and they're just not playing very well, and it's mm. it's leading to questions of whether he really is the the man to take them forward.
0: Uh, it's a couple questions about Benteke. Well, first, Benteke apparently going undergoing a scan for a hamstring injury. That um, that's not great for Liverpool, but at the same time, it, it brings back the question of whether or not Benteke is a good fit for this for this club.
1: I can see why they thought he was. Um, He's a, a figurehead, if you will. He's someone who can hold the ball up. He's also able to, to score some sensational goals and produce chances for himself. I think if you look at Luis Suarez, that was something that always used to impress me was that he didn't necessarily need service all the time. You could give him the ball out wide and he would somehow wriggle his way through defenders and end up scoring. And I think they wanted someone like that, an almost an autonomous striker who created his own goals. Um, he did cost a lot of money, though. Um an exceptionally high price, I would argue. The same with Roberto Firmino. And the problem is is that they're looking for that Suarez, that lightning in a bottle. But the problem is that took time at Liverpool. Um, he took time to grow into the player that was there in his final season. And I think that's what they're going to need this time around. They're going to need time for, for Benteke, for Firmino, to grow into these great players. And essentially, because of the position Liverpool are in, they haven't won a Premier League title, they haven't really been in the Champions League consistently. They're having to approach those players, maybe a few tiers below the elite, and say, look, we'd like you to join and hope that they become elite players while they're at Liverpool. And that's always a risky business. I think you look at maybe Manchester United, their closest rivals geographically. They're a team that can go out and sign the elite. But even they've had to now dip into the market in a different way and sign someone like Memphis Depay, Martial, these players that they hope become the elite just because they've had a difficult few seasons. It is a, a very difficult um, situation these, these teams find themselves in when it comes to mm. um, the group.
0: I'm looking at these results from the weekend, Christian, and I see that you know Newcastle <coughs> lost at home to Watford, and it just brings up the question, and, and maybe it's not... Uh, maybe it's not there that we see this, but right now, in terms of the sack race, so, somebody's probably getting closer. I don't know that it's Rodgers. I don't know that it's McLaren. Who is it?
1: I mean, in the sack race, that implies that they've been fighting. I could see Dick Avacar walking personally. Okay. Um, he looks a very frustrated man. Um, personally, I can't see Steve McLaren going just because we saw how kind of guy the, the period was with uh, Steve McLaren, uh, excuse me, Alan Pardew and John Carver, and neither of those men were sacked. Um, Mike Ashley is is kind of infamous for his patience with managers, and giving them an opportunity to really fix things. And equally, I think they're just in a transition period, Newcastle. They've got players who are trying to learn a new league, they're trying to learn a new system, Having played direct football for a very long time, that wasn't pretty, and I think bred a kind of mental inhibition in a lot of them, and they're trying to overcome that. And I think, consequently, the form will pick up. The the contrast of that is Sunderland where Dick Advocat just looks incredibly frustrated. Um I'm always reminded of an old Kevin Keegan quote when he, he quit Newcastle the second time and said it's just not like the brochure promised. And it it looks a bit like that with Advocate at the minute. Yeah. He looks like he was promised something that he just hasn't been given and now he's trying desperately to to field something that can win them again.
0: You know, I'm not I'm not clear on the on the ownership situation at Sunderland. is is, is Ellis Short still involved there? He is, yes. And he's, you know, he's he's avoiding a
1: lot of criticism. And uh, I've been in the company of Shot once or twice. And he seems a very nice guy, um, very personable. But he's made a lot of the decisions that are currently got the, the football club in the predicament they're in. He's kind of backed the managers. He's backed this kind of wholesale change every year. And it's built this logjam of, of revolutions at the football club to the point where now they're a disjointed mix where they have a an attacking fullback in Patrick van Arnholt, who next to him is Eunice Cabal, who's not mobile enough to cover for an attacking fullback, meaning there's constantly space in behind to exploit, which, you know, Callum Wilson seems to, to take immense joy in doing every weekend. And it is it is really simple problems that are inhibiting someone at the minute. And and that's a concern, because when it's the simple stuff that you're not doing right, that's when you'll find yourself fighting for relegation in the, the final few months.
0: Uh, all right. So... Okay, I'm looking at the table. The last question I'll ask you here, Chris, before I let you go. I'm looking at the table. I remember, you know, we're, we're heaping some praise on Slavin Bilic. We've got uh, West, so we've got West Ham up uh, in third place at the moment. Arsenal is Arsenal. They they lose to Chelsea. Okay, not overly unexpected. Uh, overly unexpected. Chelsea themselves struggling in fifteenth place uh, after a poor start. Uh, you know City has looked good but obviously they just lost to West Ham United has been up and down at least in terms of their play if not the results the league looks mediocre right now or or is it just competitive I mean is it should I be looking at the bright side or should I be thinking this is kind of a down year so far well when
1: there's talk of them losing a Champions League spot I think you're inclined to decide on the idea of mediocre I think what it is you know, we talk about the TV money and the impact of that and clubs making the most of it by investing heavily. What you're seeing in a lot of teams in transition. Um, a lot of teams that are using this kind of money to bring in a wave of players that are still adapting. Um, and with that wholesale change, you can almost view it two ways. You can view it in the sense that it's transitional. You can also view it in the sense that the gaps between the teams have closed and it's a heightened competition. I think there's arguably elements of both and I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, We're seeing teams like Swansea be able to beat Manchester United. Uh, We're seeing teams like West Ham able to go to the Etihad and get a result and it's because of that, because of the fact that they're bringing in new players, they're transitioning into this new team but also you're seeing the gaps between the teams close and I think for that reason, there's a good chance this season you'll actually have something exciting to watch in May at both ends of the table.'ll uh,
0: that'll, that'll be fun now the question again I mean we there, there are two there are two parallel tracks here one is the league and what's good for the league or at least good for the for the casual viewer for the um, the unattached viewer certainly like me, Chris is not necessarily good for the Premier League in Europe or for English fans who are measuring the league against Europe they could as you said chance of losing a champions league spot that is is there is there one that you I mean is it an either or situation either the league gets more competitive and fun even if that might mean a step back in terms of overall quality and they lose out in Europe or you know uh, it's going to have to be very top heavy and have two or three dominant teams for the European competition to go well.
1: I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive. I think you can get more competition and see still see the level improve. Um, I don't think there's any players that have arrived that that are poor in that sense. I think we've seen a lot of improvement in teams. Right. Um, the the example is the fact that West Ham signed Dimitri Paye. Um He's someone that, in my opinion, should be in the Champions League, and he's he's currently with West Ham. And that's no um, cri- criticism of West Ham. I think it's fantastic business to to sign someone like him. The difficulty is, is, that you say, is that the Champions League is looking as if English teams are struggling. Personally, I think those, those competitions are cyclical um, in terms of every few years, a different set of teams will dominate. Now, for the last few years, we've, we've seen Spanish and German elite dominate. Prior to that, towards the end of the last decade, it was the English teams. Mm-hmm. I think there was three of four semi-finalists mm-hmm. in 08 or 09 were English. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's it's not something to concern yourself with in that sense. I think what you look at is the domestic league and the fact that it's it's tightening as a group, which can only be a good thing because I think it's always disappointing when you have a league where you know before a ball's been kicked that you're not really likely to win the league um, and arguably you're not even likely to get into the Champions League. The more fluency you can have in, in changing positions of teams year on year, the better that is. Personally, I think it makes for more exciting competition. And even if that, you know, increases your chance of relegation, given that you were a safe team before, you take that risk because it just makes the overall package that much better. And I think it's something that the Premier League kind of needs at the moment.
0: There you go. Christian Henich, uh, follow him on Twitter, K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E, joining us after, uh, well, whatever. We made the connection work. It it held (laughs) on. It was a brilliant discussion. Chris, Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. We'll talk to you soon. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. There goes Chris. Good stuff from him. We will take a break. We will open up the phone lines and spend some time talking to you on a Tuesday. Soccer Morning, (laughs) WorldSoccerTalk.com. During the past few months, we've created a new weekend tradition, which includes watching your favorite MLS team play on TV, muting the broadcast, heading to rabble.tv to hear my audio during the game, and then drinking a cold beverage as we spend 90 minutes together discussing our favorite league. And now we're taking it to the next level by bringing back Jared Dubois to join me this Sunday for LA Galaxy FC Dallas at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. With Rabble, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the Galaxy versus Dallas game on TV, press the mute button, and then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to me and Jared through your desktop, through your iOS Android app, or through your mobile browser. Plus, before or during the game, you can join in by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. Or why don't you create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games? It's easy. Sign up for free today and try it out. Join me and Jared this Sunday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for LA Galaxy against FC Dallas on Rabble.tv where it's your team and your call. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on a Tuesday morning on Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Give me a call, 646-832-3909. Tell me what is on your mind. Obviously, those Premier League results, quite the story uh, in that Chelsea-Arsenal game. Diego Costa, the greatest villain in soccer at the moment if we were ranking villains. In world football, does Diego Costa rank higher than Luis Suarez? Yes or no? Trevor Hayward? Yes or no? Callers? 646-832-3909? No. No. Does Diego Costa rank higher as a villain than Luis Suarez? There's there's an obvious answer. I just want to ask the question. He's there though, right? I mean, he's and and here's the thing. Obviously, depending on where you, what what side of the fence you sit on or what your perspective is, Jose Mourinho probably outranking Diego Costa for most people. Yeah, Luis Suarez, Jose Mourinho, Diego Costa. Who am I missing? Is there anybody else that really ranks as a villain? I mean, I, I'm talking about all like coaches and players. Let's let's not go down the FIFA criminal list because, of course, Seth Blatter's a villain. Of course, Jerome Valk's a, a villain. Of course, Jack Warner's a villain. We we know about those people. We know that those are the the real villains, the, the, the actual criminal element of world football. I'm talking about on the field. The guys that you just... You want to punch them in the face. You know they'd probably kill you. You know that... You know, you know, you'd go to jail, but you just want to punch them in the face because it, it, just their pre, their mere presence in this game, in our game, makes your blood boil just a little bit or a lot, depending on where, who your, who your team is. If you're an Arsenal fan, wow. How many, how many Arsenal fans lost their minds on Saturday morning or Saturday, wherever you are in the world, Saturday. How many people? How many Arsenal fans just exploded? <clears throat> I, it's got to go. Look, the, the villain list has got to go deeper than that, right? I feel like this is one of those things. Like every now and then, some uh, comic website or uh, some magazine or somebody comes out with a, a the greatest list of villains. We, like, oh, the um, uh, who? Uh, who is the, the the movie? The the film people? the film Institute or whatever. They come out with like the list of the 100 greatest movie villains of all time. I'm not talking about all time. I'm talking about right now, but right now, Luis Suarez, Jose Mourinho, Diego Costa. Who else? I mean, maybe Zlatan for some people. I mean, he's a hero to me. That guy's a hero. He's a hero, but for some people, they probably don't like Zlatan, right? I mean, for for me as a as a U.S. national team fan, Rafa Marquez on that list. Nigel uh, Nigel de Young, that's like that's a good one. I think Nigel de Young for a lot of people is a villain. Clearly, clearly, a guy who will—is he still playing? He's still playing, right? Nigel DeYoung. Mike uh, in Philly's got Nick Nick Sakevich. Uh, Nick Sakevich doesn't count. Coaches, players. People who stand on the field while a game is happening. Those those people, not Nick Sikiewicz, Whether you think he's ruining soccer in Philadelphia or not, not Nick Sikiewicz. I I understand your feelings, Mike. I do. But not Nick Nigel, I mean, it's got to be guys who are blatantly dirty. Guys who do things outside the laws of the game regularly bite people. That's why Suarez is on the list. That's why he's there. there has got to be a couple other people that I'm just that for whatever reason just aren't coming to my mind. 646-832-3909. If you have a villain or anything else that's on your mind today, we can certainly touch on. Well, we can talk to Mark Fishkin and talk about the Red Bulls big win in Portland. (laughs) Hey Mark.
2: How's it going?
0: It's going well. Who's your who's your top villain? Current current villain, not not I uh, like I said Rafa Marquez maybe a Red Bull villain, uh, but he's not current. Well, I guess he's playing, so you could still use him if you wanted.
2: Hmm. My current Red Bull villain. No,
0: no, no. A- any villain. Any world football villain. Anybody. Your top villain in the game.
2: My top villain. Well, I mean, Diego Costa is obviously making some waves this week. So sure, okay. I don't know. Diego I still got Luis. Let's fill in Aurelian Collins. Always good okay. For, That's a good know, one. A
0: That's a good one. Yeah, we don't have. Do do we have any Dimas left in this league, Mark?
2: Uh, I I don't really think we have too many hard men that are blowing people up and getting red cards left, right, and center. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's it, may, it might be a year without villains in MLS.
0: Mm. I don't know. Mm. It, again, it depends on who you cheer, who you root for, who you support. In a lot of cases, but yeah. I think if there's an overarching villain in the game right now: Luis Suarez and and uh, and Diego Costa and Mourinho for a lot of people. Anyway, Mark, uh, let's talk about your team. What's on your mind?
2: Well, I, I just want to say first of all, if you haven't been out to Portland and go watch a match, um, you simply must because the city is terrific. The people are terrific. I have never walked out on a match uh, after a, a match on the East Coast and have a fan walk up to you and go, great game, man. Thanks for coming to the city and just having a great time this weekend. Wow. Yeah, that's what happened outside wow. Providence Park in Portland. Wow. After, uh, after taking, like literally,
0: hey, man, well, great, great game. Let's, you let, beat us. Let's, let's point out, Mark, that you were there. Uh, I'm sure in your in your best Red Bull garb, supporting your team, that they sure. never they never see the Red Bulls, and and there's not a I'm sure, look h- probably hated losing, but no animosity. If you were wearing rave green, I don't think you get that well, sort of, course, of. Of course, of <laughs> course,
2: of course. Right? No, New York only plays out there once every other year, so right. it's not as if there's a major rivalry built up or anything like that. But it, it was uh, as an Eastern MLS fan to go out there. Um, it's always just, uh, it's terrific. And, and the whole atmosphere there, you know, the compact downtown on game day, seemingly everyone is scarfed up and, and kitted up. And, um, you know, as, as a guy that lives in a much larger city with much larger sports competition, um, to see, uh, be in a town where everyone is getting behind the team is terrific. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a phenomenal trip. So, uh, that's really it. Just okay. a fantastic weekend, all three points, and uh, looking pretty at the top looking of, good.
0: Uh, of the heap. Looking good. Yeah. Uh, check out Mark Fishkin on Seeing Red, which is the uh, the New York soccer podcast uh, here on com. Very quickly, Mark, just to, while you're here, give you credit. He, he, Mark's posted three tweets, um, just uh, his most recent tweets, outlining some interesting stats in terms of points earned. Uh, since August mm-hmm. 1st, uh, the Red Bulls leading the league in points earned on 19, New England 18, Columbus 16. So those Eastern Conference teams really getting you know getting a bunch of points over the last uh, nearly two months. Uh, home points, L.A. leading the way with 36. That's no, no surprise there. Dallas and the Revs are good. Seattle's good. Supporting's good. D.C. United, obviously that's where they built a lot of... Um, You know, their point equity that they're sort of whittling down now. Uh, And then road points. Uh, You've got road points here. 23 road points for Vancouver. They're the best in the league. Red Bulls and Columbus on 19. The Galaxy, uh, 11 road points. A third worst in the league. Only Chicago and Montreal are worse than the Galaxy. Uh, And that's, uh, I'm starting to worry about that for them, Mark. I'm sure you're fine with it. But a lot of, I I think (laughs) Galaxy fans should be concerned.
2: Yeah, no, I think they definitely have to be concerned. They obviously have to be concerned with what they the effort and the result they saw in Salt Lake. And listen, as tight as everything is, I mean, what are the top eight teams within four points of each other in the league? Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee that L.A. is, A, going to escape the knockout round. And, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I'm sure you can't imagine it either, them having to go on the road in the knockout round and perform. And yeah. they, they have not been... A good road team. I mean, who do they have left? Dallas at home, at Seattle, Portland at home, at Kansas City. I mean, three of those That's games are going to be very, very yeah.
0: difficult. And, and if they, yeah, if they, they they absolutely for the thanks for the call, Mark. I will let you go. I got a busy uh, a busy day ahead. Yep. Uh, goes Mark Fishkin. It, the Galaxy absolutely have to avoid finishing fifth or sixth. There, there is no way they can handle that. With the, the the struggles they've had on the road, let's go down to North Carolina to talk about some villains. Who's this?
2: Hey, this is Galen from uh, Brevard.
0: Dion. is that who? What I got? Dion? Galen. Oh, Galen. Galen, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: I uh, just want to give an honorable mention to some uh, soccer villains that I didn't hear get mentioned on the show. Okay. Uh, there's definitely Diego Maradona. Okay. Um,
0: okay. Is he is, at, is he curr- is he currently coaching Sergio Ramos? Sergio Ramos. Okay, that's a good one.
2: Mario Balotelli, if he wasn't so
0: bad anymore. Is, wait, wait. Is Balotelli really a villain? I don't. I think Balotelli gets a lot of hate for. I mean, what did? Okay, what has he done that makes him a villain? Really, Galen? I don't know. It's like the
2: same as Cristiano Ronaldo, just like the absurd amount of arrogance. I think. Okay. That All, cool. right. All right. Look.
0: All right. Well, and Ronaldo backs his up, and Balotelli has trouble backing his up. Okay. Fine.
2: Okay, one more before I go. Uh, David Luis for sure.
0: Okay, David Luis. I think that... (laughs) Yeah, but that's... uh, And I guess that's why everybody laughs when David Luis gets nutmegged, because it happens all the time. Uh, (laughs) We very much enjoy that. Yeah, okay. David Luis is up there. I think that's a good shout. Thanks for the call, that's all
2: I want to say, man. Thanks.
0: Appreciate it. Good stuff from him. 646-832-3909. Just if if you have a villain you want to toss in here at the very end of the show... Uh, I'm going to look, I'm just going to Google this uh, real quick to see if there's a, if anybody has put together a list of, of villains. Oh, look, the Daily Mail has a top 10 villains. Uh, this This is historical though. Okay. So this is not necessarily in, within what I was talking about. Eric Cantona on this list. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think. I think Maradona, Roy Keane's on this list, definitely. Duncan Ferguson, Joey Barton's Joey Barton's definitely on the list, the current active list. Uh, Diego Maradona, obviously. uh, Kevin Muscat, Luis Suarez, the number one villain. I think we've come to a consensus. Luis Suarez is the greatest villain of all time in the history of the game. Uh, Probably not. Uh, But in terms of what he's done on the field, it's hard not to have that, that gut reaction. To what Luis Suarez has done, biting people, stop biting people, Luis. I mean, he's done. It, he hasn't done it in a while. Is, I'm sure you know. Maybe those biter's anonymous classes are helping, or classes, uh, meetings are helping. Maybe that's the case. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, very much appreciate you guys hanging on, dealing with our stuff, being here for soccer morning on a Tuesday, dealing with yesterday's missed show. Uh, we're gonna make it up to you, of course. We're gonna do everything we can. Uh, to continue to roll on here. If you want to uh, drop us a line, if you want to throw anything in on the show, it's at Soccer Morning on Twitter. Uh, I would very much ask that people go and leave a rating and review on iTunes. Go find the iTunes page for Soccer Morning and uh, and leave us something there. It helps out the show a lot. We have got stuff uh, over at Backhill.com you can check out. Obviously, make sure you're reading WorldSoccerTalk.com. And uh, just a, a hint: we're going to drop, uh, we, we, we dropped a, a, new, um, a new promo this coming weekend. The return of Jason Davis and Jerry Dubois doing Rabble.tv. So make sure you check that out. On Sunday, we're going to do the Dallas uh, Galaxy game, which is at StubHub Center, much to the L.A. Galaxy's relief. All right. That's it. That's it. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Thank you very much to Mark Fishkin and Galen for dropping by. And I will talk to you. On a Wednesday. Oh, there's Champions League tonight, right? There's some Champions League. I don't know. ML there's the the DC United in Anyway, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Did my invitations disappear? What I put my heart on every cursive.